Welcome back to the OPEX podcast. On today's episode, I speak with Dr. Brendan Egan from Dublin City University. On this episode, Brendan and I discuss his research around sacropenia, and we also discuss how to optimize for longevity. Guys, this was a great conversation with Brendan. Stick around. All right, Brendan, we are recording. Thanks so much for making time. How are you doing? Very good, Robbie. Good to be here. Uh, just for the listeners, should fill us in on your background. It's kind of weird interviewing you because like, we just we know each other so well. Well, when you asked me how I was, I, I gave a very simple answer, but that's not usually the answer I give you. But so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we'll, 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 uh, yeah, we'll, we'll unfold your reason for mentioning that just now as we yeah. come on with our discussion. Yeah. But no, seriously, for, for the listeners, give us a full rundown there on your, uh, on your background. Okay. Uh, current position is uh, in Dublin City University in Ireland, Associate Professor of Sport and Exercise Physiology, um, where I'm coming from, as you know right now is from Florida. So for 2020, I'm based at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition in, in Pensacola in Florida. So um, that is uh, funded by a Science Foundation Ireland um, fellowship that looks to try and push academic um, researchers into industry-based positions. And so it was an opportunity to come up uh, for funding last year that I took. And yeah, so that's where I'll be for 2020. But my research group will continue to be operational at that time. The work we do uh, predominantly is around uh, performance, I would say, in the broader sense, and uh, we look mostly at um, athletic performance from the, say, nutritional supplement and nutrition intervention side of things. Um, that's one track, and then the other side of things that we're doing is healthy aging space, uh, particularly around muscle health uh, in older adults, um, exercise and nutrition interventions that can impact on, on those outcomes. Mm. Great stuff. And listen, I, I'm aware of your whole academic background, um, but also just fill us in on that. Like you've, you've, you know, you've been worldwide essentially with your education. And for the listeners of this podcast who are international for the most part, they might be familiar with your sporting background either. Now, I know you've went in on depth in that in certain other podcasts, such as the STEM Talk podcast, which I'll link up in the show notes. But just maybe fill us in on your sporting background and also academically where you've been around the world throughout your education. Okay, academically, um, I did my undergraduate degree in sports science. That was in uh, the University of Limerick uh, in Ireland. Then I uh, was interested in nutrition and metabolism in particular, and um, a job or, or a, a course was starting up in Loughborough around that time, it was 2003, which was uh, Sport and Exercise Nutrition. Uh, Ron Maughan, Professor Ron Maughan was leading the program that time, so I uh, went there, spent a year there, uh, became much uh, more interested in the research side of things than applied practice at that time, and so I undertook a PhD back in Dublin um, with Donald Gorman, and uh, that was looking really at cellular responses to um, exercise particularly the idea that uh, the type of exercise that we do influences signaling pathways in muscle that influences gene expression uh, programs which ultimately uh, you know dictate the adaptive response uh, to exercise so that was my third move fourth move became uh, to go back i started to do a postdoc now this was in the karolinska institute in sweden so uh, mm. for that i began to focus more on um, uh, skeletal muscle insulin resistance that was in the lab of uh, Professor Julian Zirath at the Karolinska Institute. And uh, funny enough, at that time, I became uh, more interested in applied practice. So I was uh, swinging back and forth between different ideas there. And uh, I got more 
more involved again in sports applied sports nutrition and uh, as you know from a from a practitioner point of view and funny enough that then led to an opportunity that came up at UCD University College Dublin uh, which was my first um, academic role as a lecturer um, but predominantly I was uh, lecturing there on on sports nutrition um, and sports performance so Spent five years there, and then the opportunity came up to move over to uh, to DCU, which is on the north side of the city, and uh, that's where I've been based since 2016. And then on the or on the sports side, so uh, again, your international listeners probably won't know the game of Gaelic games. I guess if they've heard of Australian rules, a little bit like that, except they play with the round ball. If they haven't heard of Australian rules, um, they've definitely heard of soccer, I'd imagine. So it's like soccer, except you can use your hands. Um, but it's not as uh, rough as rugby, um, but it's not as soft as soccer. And we run a lot more than um, uh, rugby, I think, uh, cover a lot of distance. The aerobic demands are pretty high. The, uh, stri- the power uh, profile of the athletes is you know, comparable to a lot of power-based sports. So we're kind of all-rounders from, from that point of view. And uh, yeah, I played at a, what the equivalent of the elite level is in Ireland for the best part of 13 or 14 years. Um, couple of breaks here and there when I was out of the country and the various places I talked about there. But uh, yeah, kept me busy. And although I'm 37, going on 38, I'm still an active player, just not at the elite level anymore. But, um, you know, still hanging in there. Haven't quite retired yet. Yeah, you're hanging on there, buddy. You're hanging on. <laughs> and that was great stuff. So, listen, we decided that our discussion today was going to center around your work and research into Sacropenia. I know whenever we meet up in uh, DCU for our, for our monthly catch-ups and chats, which are, which are currently on hold with your hiatus over in uh, Florida, but um, that's why they invented Zoom. Uh, but um, with regards to um, our conversations on a regular basis, we often get into uh, discussions around health and longevity um, it's an area that both of us are, are pretty interested in and passionate about. So maybe just for the listeners to tell us, you know, what is Sacropenia and what sort of attracted you to this area of research? Okay. Um, yeah, I guess it's been, it's been a funny kind of journey because uh, when I came back to, uh, to UCD initially, uh, there was a professor there, Professor, professor Giuseppe DeVito, who was a, and is a world leader in the area of Sacropenia research. Uh, and um, particularly, he's, he's um, an Italian physiologist. And you know, that, the Italians, um, as a rule, have been always very um, much at the cutting edge of muscle physiology uh, down through the years. And uh, he was working um, on a number of different projects related to training effectively uh, in, in older adults. Um, whereas I was then bringing the kind of nutritional element to that. So we, we, uh, we were in the same school and, uh, and collaborating well early on. Um, and so that's kind of where my interest had initially developed. And I suppose the, to define what sarcopenia is, um, well, it's, it's changed several times over the years. Early in the, in the late 80s, it was first defined as, a, as kind of a um, disease related to muscle wasting in, in older adults, so the decline in muscle size as we age. But more recently, it's kind of the change, there's been a growing recognition that it's not really about muscle size so much as both the loss of muscle function and the loss of muscle size. So in essence, what we're talking about is that there is uh, declines in uh, muscle size and muscle strength or function, uh, it can be measured different ways um, as we age. Uh, the rate of those declines differ from, from person to person, but at some point there's a threshold that's crossed in terms of muscle size and muscle 
uh, strength that if you go below this threshold that you're then defined as sarcopenic. So um, those cutoffs aren't important for, for this discussion in terms of their actual numbers, but it is just, I guess, the point to be made is that there are some inevitable declines that occur as, as we age and then for certain individuals, they go below a threshold that would have them defined as, as sarcopenic. So it's in essence the decline in, in muscle mass and, and muscle function that occurs with age. Now, why it's relevant uh, is because um, if you look at sarcopenic uh, populations, their uh, risk of falls and fractures is much greater. Um, their recovery from illness is, is much slower, or, you know, more likely to lead to death, particularly in things like uh, cancer, cardiovascular episodes. Um, if they're immobilized for a short period of time, they lose even more muscle and strength, and they're oftentimes then are um, effectively disabled um, you know, for the remainder of their life. So there's a large number of reasons why you would want to avoid um, rates of decline in, in size and function that ultimately lead to, to sarcopenia. And I suppose the logical sort of, I wouldn't say maybe it's a question, but obviously then this is where resistance training is going to play a huge part in terms of the, yeah, so I mean, yeah, in terms of the people who are listening to this, like coaches, I mean, in terms of what they can do in regards to an intervention with elderly clients, this is obviously where they can have a huge benefit. Yeah, so the, the major uh, mitigation strategies um, that people tend to talk about and the position stance would indicate will be resistance exercise, so strength-based training. Um, generally speaking, there's an increased um, demand for or need for, for protein, so um, we can talk about the, the, the evidence for that. But in mm. the, current, the current guidelines would say that um, older adults would need 1.2 grams per kg of body mass, so 50% more um, than the RDA. But that's a, that's a number that most of us are probably familiar with as being the lower end of what athletes need. So I think the idea that different members of the population need more than the RDA isn't that controversial, but the, the number mm. that's currently given for the older adults is, is uh, 1.2 grams per kg. Um, I'll come back to the resistance training again because that's where a lot of our, our work is. But uh, there's a number of other, uh, I suppose, to, to understand the mitigation strategies for sarcopenia, you would then have to you know, understand, obviously, the causes. And so the thing about sarcopenia is that it's multifactorial. And, uh, you know, it can be uh, caused by periods of immobilization where you get sort of rapid decline in, in mass or function mm. in a short period of time. Or it can be a progressive decline that's driven by things like, um, you know, subclinical inflammation as a consequence of various other different uh, um, chronic lifestyle related chronic diseases so mm. it's uh, it's very rare that you would have just sarcopenia spontaneously appearing in uh, in isolation it's usually a consequence of other adverse lifestyle factors or or diseases um, and so um, yeah if you know so I guess if if you go back to the point I was making that it's kind of transition from say robust health down to sarcopenia and it's a long continuum and there's lots of you know, lots of different places uh, in between those two extremes. Um, at any point in someone's life, res resistance training is going to be an important part of prevention of, of the development of, of sarcopenia. So um, I, I actually, I've kind of moved away from, from using sarcopenia as, as a term um, in a lot of cases here. I just, I sort of talk about more of the decline in strength and the decline in mass and trying to arrest those declines rather than saying we're going to prevent sarcopenia because I think once, once you get into your head, that it's a it's a defined disease then i don't know just i think it plays with people's minds a little bit to uh to feel like there's this defined disease that you're moving towards i think it's it's just better to maybe just forget the disease name and just talk more generally about you know it's better for your health if you can be stronger or it's better for your health if you can prevent uh, loss of muscle mass or slow i should say rather than prevent you know they're, they're the types of uh, ways we've been talking to the people in our studies more or less now yeah 
With regards to protein intake, this is a very interesting area with regards to the older population because as we get older, some would suggest that our ability to actually break down and utilize protein you know, gets worse, just basic mm. wear and tear of the digestive mm. system. You know, if you have somebody who's 70 versus somebody who's 30, they have 40 more years of digestion yeah. gone through their whole, you know, their whole enteric system. So it's a bit of a double edge, like, uh, or not double edge, it's a bit of a catch 22. Sorry, is what I meant to say. A bit of a catch 22 in that older adults do seem that they do need more protein to help preserve more muscle mass mm. and lean, lean tissue, but at the same time, seem to be less capable of digestion digesting it to a degree where they can optimally utilize the protein so in in terms of that sort of situation what are your thoughts yeah so this is um this is an area of of hot research because there's a little bit of disagreement in in this area when you get down into the practical applications Mm -hmm. so if we if we look at this broad recommendation that older adults need more protein that's that's fairly widely accepted the next question becomes then how much uh, of a dose per eating occasion or per meal should that be? And so we know that in if we're talking about maybe a, have you had people on before talking about muscle protein synthesis and control of muscle mass? No, so no, not okay. to the, not to the degree that Danny would have on sigma nutrition. Okay, okay. He's well then, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it quite brief. But the the prevailing opinion at the moment would be that um, our muscle mass is controlled by the um, well contractile activity and the way we move and so on, but. From a nutrition point of view, um, the idea is that every time you consume a protein-containing meal, that there's a stimulation of a process called muscle protein synthesis. And multiple you know, in, um, stimulations of muscle protein synthesis throughout the day um, basically keeps our muscle mass at a, at a defined uh, level. And if you're trying to gain muscle, then obviously resistance training on top of added protein or more protein-based eating occasions can lead to the accrual of, of lean mass. Um, so that's the kind of the way of thinking now. The idea is that in, in there's a certain threshold for eating occasion that you need to meet. Uh, the number that's currently used is 0.24 grams uh, per kg of body mass. Sometimes it's rounded up to 0.3 grams per kg of body mass. So if someone who's 80 kilos, um, that's 24 grams. And so you tend to hear recommendations of between 20 and 30 grams of protein per eating occasion um, as being the best way to maximally stimulate MP- uh, muscle protein synthesis. Mm. And then if you break that down, again, based on the amount that you would have per day, you're basically, in most people, you're looking at somewhere in the region of three to five eating occasions of 20 to 30 grams of protein. That's, again, I'm being very broad. Ball, ballpark, yeah. 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 Um, so, so that's one element. Now, in the older adult, um, as you rightly say, they need more protein per eating occasion. So uh, the, again, the current guidelines at the moment would say they need 0.4 grams per kg of um, 0.4 grams of protein per kg of body mass in order to maximum stimulate muscle protein synthesis, which is in contrast to the 0.24 or 0.3 that's in a younger adult. So already what you're talking about there is needing more protein to produce the same muscle protein synthesis response. So that by definition is, is anabolic resistance. Now, the question becomes what leads to anabolic resistance? So why does the older adult need more protein per eating occasion in order to get the same uh, stimulus to this muscle protein synthesis response? And again, that's multifactorial. So the first point, as you rightly say, is is the digestion and absorption. For reasons we don't fully understand, for the same amount of protein consumed, less protein actually uh, gets out of the gut, for want of a better phrase, and into the bloodstream. So we call that postprandial aminoacidemia. And that's lower in older adults than it is in younger adults for the same amount of protein consumed. So for, we call it sequestering. So there's some, for some reason, there's more 
amino acids being sequestered by the gut in an older adult. Um, so that's one thing. So now you've got less postprandial amino acid availability. Um, it turns out that again, in older adults, there's less muscle perfusion. In other words, there's less blood flow to the muscle that's in the absence of, of exercise. So now you've got less amino acids in the bloodstream anyway, and you've less getting to the target tissue, which in this case is the muscle, because blood flow um, is reduced. We're talking about at the capillary level here. Mm. Um, so then you've got that. So ultimately then you've got less presentation of amino acids to the muscle uh, in, the, in the aftermath of ingesting a meal. And therefore you get less stimulation of the anabolic response, um, the anabolic signaling pathways within muscle. And that then is part of the reason why you get less of a muscle photosynthesis response. Now, on top of that, if you add the fact that someone's inactive, um, if you add, so they may have, and if they're overweight, for example, then they're more likely to have what we call ectopic lipid deposition. So basically pockets of fat within the muscle. Um, and they're also more likely to have chronic low level inflammation. Now, both of those factors can, can also impair anabolic signaling uh, within the muscle. So all of those things combined essentially means that, for, yes, for, this, for a certain dose of protein, the older adults, you've got the so-called anabolic resistance because you're getting less of a muscle protein synthesis response to the same ingestion of, of a quantity of protein, sorry, ingestion of the same quantity of protein as a younger adult. Going back to the mitigation side of things, uh, exercise, of course, will stimulate um, muscle perfusion, enhance, you know, Chronic training will enhance capillarization within the muscle, so you get better delivery. Um, if exercise leads to weight loss, or if it has anti-inflammatory effects, or if it mobilizes some of the intramuscular um, fat stores that, um, that I mentioned, all of those things are also going to improve the anabolic, now we're talking about anabolic sensitivity, they will all improve the anabolic sensitivity of the muscle. So which just goes back to why the prescription generally tends to be resistance exercise or as our group studies, concurrent exercise training um, plus protein supplementation or protein ingestion as being the, you know, the best way to get um, an optimal muscle protein synthesis response. To complicate it one little bit uh, further then, um, as you said, uh, older adults generally, um, they have less of an appetite for high protein meals, or it can be that the types of food that we would traditionally suggest, for example, meats um, that are harder to chew, um, as just for one example, um, are things that older adults will eat less of. Mm. So despite all of these things that we're talking about in terms of needing more protein um, and having resistance at the periphery in terms of the response to that protein, they probably generally eat a little less protein um, as well. So then you get to the question of, well, if I, you'll hear people, so this is what I said is a controversy, I think at the moment in, in the field, or maybe the, it's not a controversy, it's something that people are, are discussing and um, trying to figure out the best answer here. So if you were to say, well, I want even distribution of protein throughout the day, I want, you know, let's say it is 30 grams of protein at three or four different meals across the day in an older adult. The flip side of that, or the, you know, the unintended consequence could be that if you give them a very high protein breakfast, which they typically don't eat, they may not then be hungry come lunchtime. So they now, instead of eating protein, you know, a meal at lunchtime, they're maybe skipping lunch. And then they're at dinner time they're eating maybe a suboptimal amount as well. So in your efforts to increase their protein intake at breakfast, you may have impacted negatively on protein intake throughout the rest of the day. So again, there's been this idea, well, should we target an even distribution of protein throughout the day in older adults, or should we just make sure that they get at least one or two eating occasions where they definitely get above the so-called anabolic threshold? And again, one of the kind of uh, practical implications there has been people have become increasingly interested in the idea of a high protein meal right before bedtime, because that's unlikely to affect appetite in the next meal. Um, it adds an extra protein-based or protein-rich eating occasion to the day, and it just is an addition to what they might be doing at, at lunch or, or, or dinner. So what, what I should have said um, at the start is that generally, um, older, no, 
sorry, this is across the board, athletes, young people, uh, older adults, they generally follow a skewed distribution of protein intake where your intake is low at breakfast, moderate at lunch, high at dinner or, or post-exercise people train in the evening. And so there's this whole debate about whether it's you know, improving the evenness of that distribution um, or whether it's trying to create in older adults now to make sure that at least a couple of those eating occasions get above the, the anabolic threshold. So sorry now for turning this into a nutrition podcast, but that's, uh, that's what happened there. But uh, that's, that's the current thinking at, at this moment in time anyway, around, around protein intake. You kind of answered the next question I was going to follow up with in your answer there about the, the types of exercise that would be best for mitigating um, sarcopenia. And you kind of mentioned that concurrent training seems to be the best. The, the reason why the question came into my mind and even actually the term concurrent came into my head was because James from OPEX, like he just constantly says that the best training for longevity is essentially bodybuilding and aerobic training. And what he means by bodybuilding really is that just training that induces muscle hypertrophy and that isn't beating up your joints. So, you know, a lot of time under tension type stuff. And yeah. he kind of just uses bodybuilding as a sort of a catch-all term. Um, mm. And he kind of uses it to kind of shock people because people go, what, bodybuilding? What are you talking about? Because they think obviously bodybuilders, but he just means like resistance training that's going to just stimulate muscle mm. and, you know, and not destroy your joints. And then like long, steady aerobic training. So he always gives the example of, you know, being a 90 year old man who can still get a boner and hike up a hill. Like that's kind of, that's kind of what he's going after. You know, he's like, that guy doesn't need to be doing like high intensity training or CrossFit or Olympic weightlifting or, do you know what I mean? If that's his goal, like, um, yeah, well, just sorry, just in terms then of exercise, I know you touched on concurrent there, but is there anything else you, you want to add to exercise? In- yeah, no, I'll say a bit about the work that we've done in that area. So um, the first thing I actually I want to come back to your point about uh, sarcopenia again is that uh, if you look at the definitions of sarcopenia um, in terms of those cutoffs, the incidence of sarcopenia is probably not as high as people might suspect. So well, again, I'm, I'm in a little bit of a bubble, you and I maybe both perhaps, where we kind of, believe that this whole, the, um, the loss of muscle mass and strength, you know, is a really big health issue. And we think we're seeing it everywhere, you know, so that kind of bias you see sometimes in the inner bubble. Yeah, Whereas yeah. Mo- you know, many people probably aren't aware of it, but I, yeah, I always tell the story. I started showing these cross-sectional um, pictures of, of, of the upper leg of the thigh um, in my presentations just to the general public. And when they see that, you know, where you're seeing, so your audience is probably familiar, or maybe they're not. So to explain, it's, it's a cross-section of, of the thigh on MRI, and you can see the, the bone, the femur in the middle, and then you can basically see muscle around that and fat around, around that. And again, depending on whether the person is a, a young athlete, an older athlete, or a sarcopenic individual, you're seeing different amounts of, of fat and muscle. Mm-hmm. But people are generally shocked when they see that. And then they really, I think, become aware of this idea that, you know, you can lose muscle as you age. And there's all these statistics about losing a percent per year and 10% per decade and, and so on and so forth. But if you actually look at the, at the cutoffs and then the definitions and then look at the incidence of, of sarcopenia within the population, it's actually relatively low. And you could, I, I often make the case that it's a really serious problem if I'm writing a grant. But if someone turned around and said, well, if the incidence is not under 10%, that's not that important, you know? So yeah. you kind of have to, you have to be careful. That's why I think it's, it's better not to focus on the defined you know, existence of sarcopenia in individual as opposed to just their, their, you know, their, their weaker or their, um, you know, not carrying as much mass as, as they probably should. But one of the things, anyway, if you're not looking at sarcopenia, but just looking at this, say, the functional side of things, so whether that's walking speed or grip strength, 
chairized test and so on, there's, def there's definitely a higher percentage of people who are deficient or below threshold on that. Mm. They just don't also have the low muscle mass that constitutes in them being defined as sarcopenic. So I think that's where you can get into um, uh, a little bit of an issue when you focus predominantly on sarcopenia. Then the next thing I'd point out is that it's actually relatively difficult to change muscle tissue mass on uh, an older adult. Um, you do quite a bit of training and you have quite a decent um, and prolonged nutrition intervention in order to be able to put on meaningful size. You know, you can find statistically significant changes of, you know, a few hundred grams. That's possible to do with large enough study and, and so on. But, you know, that's a few hundred grams isn't a huge amount. And so to actually put on decent size back on an individual, say, who lost it during a period in activity, for example, that's a quite a tricky thing to do. So I, I, again, this is more of a pragmatic um, approach rather than what we do in research, but I would put the emphasis really on, on strength and function. And your example there of being able to hike up a, a hill, that's an example of endurance and strength. And I think that is mm -hmm. a, you know, that's a very good example by James in that regard. So if you go into the, the, the training side of things, then again, we can produce fairly quick and uh, you know, large changes in older adults with relatively little training. So the study that we published a couple of years ago was a study that compared aerobic exercise to resistance exercise to concurrent training, which was aerobic and resistance, as, as you know, and your audience knows. Um, but one of the differences in our work for that study compared to a lot of the others was that we, um, for the concurrent exercise training group, they did half the amount of aerobic exercise that the aerobic group did and half of the resistance exercise that the resistance group did. So ultimately all of the groups did the same amount of total time of training, which was around about 25 minutes, three times a week. And for a variety of the different parameters that we measured, and we measured a range of strength and aerobic fitness and blood pressure and lean body mass and all the rest of it, that's all covered in the paper. But for a number of those parameters, there was a better response in the concurrent exercise training group compared to the other uh, two groups who trained either aerobic or resistance in, in isolation. So again, if you're talking about bang for your buck, time efficiency, targeting enough, you know, targeting the various different parameters of, of health and fitness, I think this idea of concurrent training is, is the way to go. And it's not that that's um, you know, a shocking revelation because the, the ACSM's guidelines, even though they're, they're 10 years old now at this stage, they do suggest that it should be you know, three, five days of aerobic exercise a week and two sessions of strength training a week. And a lot of people get into this idea, well, I have to do my different training on different days and that's so much training and how do I have time to do all that? But the reality is that you know, for, in an older adult in particular, um, it's only a relatively small dose of exercise that's required to make improvements in, in health and fitness. And again, we're not trying to make them into elite athletes. We're just trying to slow the decline or perhaps we're trying to reverse the decline from say a period of inactivity or you know, an injury or something that they had. Um, but there, you know, that is the message I'd be trying to give to particular to practitioners and if there's any older adults themselves who are listening is that the dose that's required is relatively, uh, relatively small compared to say athletes and yet the return on investment uh, is, is pretty large. And like I, I, we think anyway that the concurrent training model is, is a good way to go. About your point there about, you know, that it actually is a very small percentage of the population that would actually classify as having sarcopenia. Mm. What, what comes to my mind, though, is, is it not sort of similar? Now, obviously not to the same extent, but in my mind, I see it like very similar to a lot of people who are, they're not yet diabetic, but they're definitely pre-diabetic. So what I mean by that is, like, I look at my parents and I look at like a lot of my uncles and aunties and just older people and they've definitely increased fat mass to lean mass as the years have gone by. Like, you know what I mean? So 
you know, I, I, like there, there's definitely a loss of functional strength that has occurred, even though they mightn't be classified as having sarcopenia yet. So yeah. is, is it similar in that regard in that, like, you know, the way you've often heard a story that, oh, you're not diabetic, but like the blood sugar is literally borderline. It's just the doctor, yeah. the doctor's waiting for the tip. And it's kind of similar to people that, okay, you don't have, you know, clinical sarcopenia here by the definition of what it would be in the, in the, in the textbook. But you could clearly see that this person like does need to improve body composition from a lean mass standpoint for strength and health. Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent, Robbie. I mean, as I said earlier, it is a continuum from let's say robust health down to sarcopenia. Yeah. And so where you are on that continuum is, is kind of hard to define. We know what the threshold for being sarcopenic is, but you know, anytime you're, you know, declining in strength and, and, uh, and function, then you're on that, that, uh, that continuum of that direction towards that. So there, and to go back to your to your point, in that there were or there are people who who want to bring in other definitions. So there's something called dynopenia, which is where you've got weakness in the absence of a loss of muscle mass. There's myopenia, they call it, where you've got a, a loss of muscle mass but not a loss of um, strength. And you know, again, some people will be listening to this going, "Well, sure, you can't have one and not the other." But that's one of the kind of the big, um, you know, I wouldn't say it's a myth, but a lot of people don't realize that strength and size are uncoupled, you know, to a large extent um, as we age. And so you can lose a lot of um, strength and function for not much loss in, in uh, tissue mass, in, in lean tissue mass as well. So these are, uh, yeah, they're important nuances in the discussion. But I think the reality is if we just, again, go back to pragmatic viewpoint, the vast majority of people in the population are in bad metabolic health. You know, we, we know those statistics now, probably two out of three people. Um, if inactivity under underlies their poor metabolic health then it's almost certainly going to also mean that they're at a deficit for strength whether they're at a deficit for our function whether they're at a deficit for muscle mass you know that's very hard to quantify of course that's the other thing you have to be pragmatic about um but you know not anyone who's got adverse metabolic health whether you call it you know like, like pre-diabetics um you know you can assume that they're going to probably have poor muscle health or let's say you know, a decline in muscle health relative to what would be optimal. Um, and again, so I just say one more point. There is, there, again, there are people who would classify definitions of pre-sarcopenia as well. But a lot of these other conditions that I just mentioned there, they don't have really well-defined um, cutoffs as such uh, compared to the actual definition of sarcopenia as right now. Habit change. I know we've spoken about this um, a lot when, when, again, when we've met up over the years. Um, because, like, again, we're talking about elderly population here and you know, the old saying, it can be very hard to teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> and we, we've often spoken about, you know, people in our own lives that we would love to see, make some better choices with, the, with, regards, to, with regards to their own health. But just, just cause I know, you know, we, we've had Daniel Davy on this podcast and just for the listeners, this is the Brendan Egan that Daniel Davy, <laughs> that Daniel Davy is in love with. <laughs> um, but uh, myself and Daniel obviously spoke about behavioral change being huge when it comes to nutritional habits and then just with regards to our conversation here with, with, with regard to the sarcopenia in the elder population and even just not even just having sarcopenia but just you know being healthy and kind of what Peter Tia talks about and that you know you kind of just want to have that sort of healthy 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 and then just a quick decline rather than like you know being healthy for about 50 60 years and having like this 30 or 40 year really bad decline in health but um obviously habit change is going to be a huge thing then so just from your perspective and thoughts 
on trying to mitigate some of the age-related diseases. I mean, it doesn't even have to be just limited now to sarcopenia, but just set for health and longevity and to be as robust as possible as a human being as you get older. Mm-hmm. When it comes to habit change, like what, where are your thoughts on that currently? Yeah, well, this is, uh, you know, I'm on record now on a few podcasts where I get asked a question uh, at the end, you know, where do you think your research should go at this point? And I've been talking about nutrition, I'm talking about exercise, different exercise regimens, the best way to train, you know, minimum effective dose, all those things. And I think the, the answer people are looking is that I'm going to say some new nutrition supplement or strategy or some new training strategy. And the answer is, um, I say, the place we need to go now is, is behavior change. Now, mm-hmm. I have no expertise in this area, so I'm not going to be able to give you, I'm not going to be able to answer your question. What I'll just acknowledge is that we've got all of these brilliant intervention studies that have been done in the, in the published literature, um, you know, now hundreds that have been done in, in older adults, whether you're talking about training, nutrition, or the two of them combined. And yet the challenge still remains to be how do we actually get, you know, most of these are supervised interventions. Um, meals provided, the nutrition supplements provided, and so on and so forth. How do we actually translate that into the into the real world? So I, I don't know if, if you and I have spoken about the, the piece of research we just published, but uh, we had that group that I mentioned that we trained um, for 12 weeks, the, the concurrent training groups. Um, we followed them up a year later. Do we discuss this? No, I'm not tell the audience anyway. it doesn't matter if we discussed it. I need to tell you again for the audience. But um, <laughs> so, so uh, we followed them up a year later when they were discharged from their supervision. You know, they were supervised for three days a week for, for twelve weeks, and then a year later we, we followed up and it was looking at um, questionnaires, seeing much activity they were currently doing, um, and then looking at their actual all the measures we measured in the study, looking at their current status, you know, one year later, and so um, ultimately uh, the, the the you know the, the summary results are that about 80% of them still remain doing aerobic type exercise, but only 25, 20%, sorry, less than 20%, one in five individuals uh, were still doing strength-based training. And then if you go and look at all of the measures that improved over the 12 weeks, they'd all declined by a year later, which isn't surprising. You know, that's not a shocking uh, finding that over, over the years, over one year, and people who are over the age of 65, that various health-related parameters decline. But it was the ones that had the most, the largest decline were the improvements in strength that had been seen in the study were now going you know, much more uh, in reverse uh, one year later. So my point in relation to behavior change here is that when we then did uh, semi-structured interviews with them to ask them about their habits um, you know, in the year and, and what they learned from the study, what were the barriers, facilitators, and so on. And what ultimately came back to was they uh, value social interaction when it comes to exercise. They don't like going to the gym by themselves. They don't like training in, in uh, this is again over 65. They don't like training in environments where it's not, you know, it's not age appropriate, let's say. So the, if you were to put, tie it all together, what it's simply saying is that we need to design exercise interventions and exercise environments that uh, older adults feel comfortable in and have a social component and makes them more likely to, to engage with that. And again, it came up repeatedly that, yes, they know the benefits of exercise, but at their age, they're actually more interested in the social interaction and social benefits than the actual exercise itself. And that's a very different uh, view, I would say, or, or yeah, outlook on exercise compared to what you might have in, in you know, 18 to 34-year-olds, the typical groups that are, that are studied in those type of questionnaires and studies. So. I think that um, it's not a very, it's not just a simple question of, you know, there's a way of changing habits. There's a whole other element to behavior change um, that facilitates exercise or that breaks down barriers to exercise. Another major one which we wouldn't have considered because the research that we did was in South Dublin. It was the university alumni mailing list. In other words, it was a lot of people from 
wealthier social economic background. So for, again, for the international uh, listeners, South Dublin is, is the wealthier part of, of Ireland. Um, and, uh, you know, typically speaking, again, from a lot of different studies, university alumni tend to be better educated and have more uh, disposable income. But these were now retirees, and they felt that the cost of gym membership was too expensive for what it was going to get, uh, get for them. Uh, or what they were going to get out of it. So again, that was something we weren't expecting, but that repeatedly came up as well. So cost, cost is a factor. So my point is that you've got all of these factors that you have to understand um, in the broader context before you can start you know, talking about the things like, uh, you know, Daniel and, and uh, would like to talk about you know, how the, the habit change that he would do in order to make sure that he flosses his teeth or, you know, you know, these small types of things where you leave objects around the house or you remind you around the house. That's a completely, I think, different type of behavior change to where you're trying to break down uh, uh, barriers that are present in, let's call it society or, or the, the, you know, the, the larger environment. So it's a, it's a very complicated question. Like I said, I don't pretend to know much about what the interventions should be to, to make those changes, but I do know based on our research that it's, uh, you know, these, old, these guys knew exactly how to train because they'd been part of a supervised intervention, yet they weren't inclined to do it for a whole host of reasons that, uh, that I described there. So it's, um, it's a big challenge. Flip side of that, of course, you might say, well, our generation train in the gym you know, and, you know, there's much more gym culture in the current, say, millennials and, you know, uh, pretty much everyone since the baby boomers uh, have, a, have a resistance training culture, you would say. But again, it's a smaller percentage of the population. We're still going to run into big healthcare issues um, as, as, as we go ahead. But it might be the case that strength training is more widely accepted in future generations and it's not such a big issue as it is right now in the, in the baby boomers. Yeah, I was just about to make that point that you just made there at the end and that, it, it probably it, it is definitely going to be a lot harder to you know make these behavioral changes in you know the current plus 60 plus 70 population right now then it probably will be to the 20 30 year old who's listening to this when they are in their 60s or 70s because there is much more of a, a fitness-based culture as you say within the current population but again it is still only i suppose this goes back to what you said earlier on about kind of me and you being in our own bubble you know, it's uh, like, it's funny. I remember Mike Boyle saying this one time. He's like, you know, if, if you talk to somebody who works in a bar and says to them, like, do you think people have drinking issues? They'd be like, yeah, <laughs> yeah I see alcoholics every day. Whereas, like, if you ask someone who's, like, working in a gym and doesn't hang around alcoholics, you're like, oh, yeah. is there a problem with alcoholics? It's because, again, yeah. you're in your own bubble. Like, yeah. so it's it's probably similar to in terms, like, you know, me and you were like, well, like, all of our mates go to the gym now and, yeah, right. uh, you know, they they are they all have the concept of what you know a, a healthy lifestyle is in terms of fitness and nutrition and sleep hygiene. But again, and if you took the whole global population, you'd be like, oh, I don't, yeah. I don't even think that's a grain of sand we we're after picking up there. But <laughs> but again, we are more connected, and and definitely, you know, um, we've spoken about this as well at times. It's like it'll be interesting to see in the next, you know, five, ten, fifteen, definitely twenty years up to fifty years where this sort of integration of technology with sort of longevity is going to take us. Um, you know, this whole boom and sort of the biomedical industry. And that's kind of a, one of the closing questions I want to ask you too. What sort of areas currently, Brennan, like are kind of, you know, I suppose the word is fascinating you or that you're interested in sort of kind of keeping an eye on to see where it might lead to in terms of, you know, where current technology is, is and where it's mm -hmm. going and where it might interconnect with health and longevity. 
yeah, I mean the the longevity question and uh, the health span question they're 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 different in some respects to uh, the questions we're asking in our research, which is you know how how should we best train or best uh, feed an, an older adult uh, to bring about changes in, in uh, strength and, and muscle mass. It's um it's one we could probably talk quite for quite some time on. I uh, it was funny I was at a, a conference at the weekend rob wolf was speaking and um he touched on a, a topic that's been you and i have mentioned this before but uh again I'll, it's for the benefit of the audience i'll talk about the his title of his talk was longevity are we trying too hard and it's it is something that you know we you and i have discussed so um the idea is really that you know we're trying all of these different so-called biohacks mm. and yet sometimes we're missing you know the bare basics that need to be done and not focusing on those things and yeah. um so I, I actually don't pay too much attention to technology, biohacking, any of that kind of thing. I, I think it's, it's um, for a lot of people, it's the worried well. You know, they're the people that, um, they're in good health anyway. They're probably um, fairly well disposed when it comes to income. And they're trying all of this kind of crazy stuff to try and eke out what they believe might be a small bit of better health or a few more years. And... In my opinion, there's, you know, in an awful lot of cases, there's no real evidence to suggest that that it's going to be beneficial. It's all rather circumstantial, speculative stuff. And, you know, sometimes people say, well, it's doing no harm, so I'll try it. Um, but I just think you can end up getting distracted and over-focused on, on, on that type of thing. Um, in this space of, let's say, where, where the research is heading, um, I'm interested in this idea that we can have... Um, Let's say I don't buy the whole exercise method concept that there's a you know a drug that can replace exercise, um, but I do think we should be thinking about particularly in in sick individuals. Let's call them you know broadly speaking sick individuals. I think we can be looking at ways that can enhance the response to exercise. I won't say it'll make exercise easier, but let's say if someone's only capable of doing half the amount of exercise that you would like them to do, that there's some adjuvant therapy that can then get them up to the level that we would have hoped they would get out of that exercise session. So the example that I that I give is that there's been a, a, a kind of an, an explosion of, of um, drugs that have been, are interested in developing drugs that can, uh, that can treat sarcopenia. And the thing they focus primarily on is hypertrophy of muscle mass. So they try and increase muscle mass. And because those pathways are relatively well-defined, um, there's actually been a number of companies that have been successful in developing drugs that have gone to phase two, phase three clinical trials that are able to induce muscle hypertrophy. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's great. The vast majority of them, there's a review um, that came out earlier, sorry, it's 2000, late 2000, mid-2019, um, that essentially reviewed all of the data from these particular studies, there's maybe 15 or so of them at this stage. And the overwhelming conclusion is that, yes, these drugs can increase muscle hypertrophy, but they don't necessarily... Um, increase muscle um, muscle strength or muscle function or patient reported outcomes. So the analogy that I'm uh, fond of saying nowadays is that it's like putting new wheels on a car but not fixing the transmission. You know, we're not you have you've got people with larger muscle, um, but they're not they're not improved in terms of their health related quality of life or their or their uh, size or strength and function. However, if you could take one of those drugs and you know do a small amount of exercise and ultimately get a small amount of improvement in mass and maybe it leads to the little bit of exercise means that you get a little bit more out of that exercise from a strength and function point of view, I think that's going to be a good way to go. And I think people are thinking about drugs like that when it comes to um, things like metformin as well, where you know, you've got, of course, you've got some people who are just taking metformin only as a therapy and then you've got some people who don't need metformin who are taking it 
for longevity. Um, but maybe there's a there's a also a scenario where there's people who are not able, quite able to do enough exercise. They don't need a high dose of metformin, but somehow it could be a, you know something that there's a synergism uh, with. You've probably seen there's some research saying that metformin blunts the response to exercise and so on. So mm. it's complicated, but um, I think that that's where I would you know if there's a if there's a a marriage between kind of the applied practice stuff that we do and the more basic science. I don't think it's in, the, in that, that basic science you're going to develop a drug that's going to replace exercise. I think there's maybe some way that we could look at how uh, pharmacotherapy could, could enhance exercise in people who can do very little exercise or um, I wouldn't say can't do any exercise at all, but have to do modified types of, of training programs. Um, in, in terms of exercise prescription, I do think in the, in the older adult, uh, I think this exploration of the minimum effective dose, I think is interesting. You know, what what types of exercise, um, and by that I mean like types of lifting regimens, for example, strength training regimens or uh, aerobic training regimens, um, what are the minimum effective doses? How do they interact when it's concurrent training? Uh, I think that's the way to go because the reality is, as we discussed, you know, changing someone's behavior to be meeting the current recommended guidelines, I think that's going to be very hard to do. But if we can get people to at least do the minimum effective dose, then I think... Uh, that could be a good place to be, but I don't think we're close to knowing that at all, uh, based on the studies that are out there at the moment. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot of different areas that could go, but uh, that's just yeah, off the top of my head. The one question actually that just popped to my mind that I meant to ask was the the mTOR question, because <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a whole podcast episode in itself. But um, I mean, that's that's something we can tackle at a at a at a, at a future conversation because I definitely want to get you back on to to discuss your obviously your work around ketones too. Um, listen, you've we're going to wrap up here now. You've listened to uh, a lot of my podcasts, so you've uh, you've definitely heard this last question asked. So you you must have put some thought into this at some stage. No, this was the question that I you just caught me on the hop to ask me to do the podcast today. I was going to say, do not ask me this question. <laughs> Um, you know, if this this is the dinner question, is it? Yeah, yeah. The, the, I'm not the, I'm not going to name anyone, but I, I would have stipulations about who I would be having dinner with. Their their table manners, <laughs> whether they're going to do a lot of talking. You know, I you couldn't you always ask, the question I get is totally theoretical, but I'd be answering it practically. I'd be like, first of all, I don't like talking when I'm eating. Second of all, I don't like bad table manners. <laughs> To all of these legendary people from history, uh, you know, I'd rather maybe just go and have a dinner with my wife. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's got, you're actually the first person who really got into like the actual details. Where is it? What type of food is it? I don't. <laughs> yeah. Is it is it Mexican? Good good, good table manners. So uh, no, this yeah. Brendan, that's been uh, that's been fantastic today. I really appreciate it. Um, and just for any of the listeners that you know would like to reach out to you or follow up or have any questions where would be the best place to contact you yeah so all the research uh, that we do I, I put it all up on research gate so people can get uh, any of our papers from there if they're uh, pri private text you can just uh, email me and uh, request uh, as you know Robbie I don't do social media so um, if people want to uh, get in touch it's email is the best way to get me but uh, just search my name and DCU Dublin City University I'm not going to give out my email across the uh, across the airways but uh, if someone's desperate to get in touch with me I, I reply to all emails so um yeah that's the, the best way to do it all right brendan listen really appreciate you making time today and sure stay online there and i'll say goodbye to you but for everyone listening until next time peace